Our first scripture reading today comes to us from the book of Isaiah, the 50th chapter, verses 1 through 7. That's page 832 if you're following along in this, and if you're at home, I don't know which version you're looking at. Let's listen together for a word from God. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's bill of divorce with which I put her away? Or which of my creditors is it that to whom I have sold you? No, because of your sins you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was put away. Why was no one there when I came? Why did no one answer when I called? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? By my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make rivers for a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water or die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the teacher, that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Morning by morning he wakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backwards. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who pilt Pulled out the beard, I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. The word of the Lord. This morning's second reading comes to us in the Samuel King's cycle of the Old Testament, uh, this time from the book of 2 Samuel, which is just one stop along the long and fascinating journey of King David. Uh, just as a quick setup, uh, Joab is David's number one general, kind of the General Schwarzkopf, or if you're my age, General Patton, of King David, the king of Israel's army. And David is writing a letter to Joab, the general, to, uh, for him to uh, give a special assignment to one of his soldiers. Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to you and to the church this morning. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan came to David and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. The lamb used to eat of this man's meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for this wayfarer who had come to him. But he then took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for his guest who had come to him. Having heard this, King David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Nathan said to King David, You are the man. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. May the meditations of our hearts together this morning on your word to us in this great and difficult story be acceptable in your sight, O Lord our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uriah was married to Bathsheba. And what we have here in this story today in 2 Samuel is not a case of a failure to communicate. What we have here is a case of mistaken identity. King David is furious after his trusted advisor, Nathan, tells him a story about how a powerful man took a precious lamb, the man's, uh, uh, the only lamb owned by a poorer man. And when King David heard that story, his anger was kindled against the man, and he yells, this guy deserves to die. And then Nathan, Nathan says to the, to the king, you are that man. What we have here is a case of mistaken identity because King David, famous, faithful David, has forgotten who he is. I would say that in the past two, almost two and a half years as we've lived through this pandemic, the biggest pastoral problem or burden that I see again and again has to do with identity. Cases of mistaken identity. People are asking more and more and more than ever at the same time, what am I doing? With whom am I doing it? And where am I doing it? In other words, who am I? Who do I want to be? Am I who I want to be? Am I... Where I want to be, am I doing what I want to do, do and do, am I doing it with people I want to be with? I see this all the time. People are moving, relationships are ending, starting, careers are shifting. And the question is, who am I? The question people keep asking each other. 
It's the question we all carry around with us all the time, but usually we keep the question of who we really are and who we want to be sort of stashed in the back of our mind because we tell ourselves that we're answering it every day with our jobs, with our families, with our social lives, but we humans tend to drift. A choice here, a choice there, and we find ourselves moving farther and farther away from who we want to be, who we feel like we are born to be. We sort of lose ourselves until something or someone forces us to look in the mirror, confronts us, challenges us, does us the difficult, hard, unpleasant favor of holding a mirror up in front of us and saying, look at yourself as you really are. And it's hard, but not all bad. In fact, it is the essential first step to life. The foundational premise today as we look at this passage from 2 Samuel is that my life, not just my religious life, my life of faith, but my whole life isn't whole, isn't complete until I face the truth that on my own I can't get myself together as hard as I try. I'm not just Humpty Dumpty who now and then has a great fall. I'm also all the king's men who can't put Humpty back together again, though I try. And that's why Jesus Christ exists. That's who God is to us, a God who reaches out and finds us and restores us to wholeness, completes the circle, brings us back to who we were born to be. And God does that because of love. Because God so loved the world, God gave God's only Son that whoever, or as I learned it, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have abundant and everlasting life. But it's not easy. Mirrors, as I just experienced with the kids, are scary things, and they just get more and more scary as we get older. There's the old joke about the two friends who went out to a bar to go drinking one night, and as they're sitting there, they look across the bar, and they see two old drunks across the way, and the one friend says to the other, well, that, side, that sad sight's going to be us in about 10 years. And his friend said to him, that's a mirror, genius. That's us. We don't see ourselves as we really are, but a life of genuine faith always begins with that hard step. Always, faith always begins with this sort of ruthless self-assessment, which is a risk. It's hard, it's painful, we can't skip it. But it is never the final word, because the second step, after an honest confrontation with ourselves, after we look at the mirror, into the mirror and see ourselves as we really are, the second step is always this assurance that God is with us anyway, that we aren't alone. In 1944, near the end of World War II, a 19-year-old Hungarian boy, still a boy, named Andras Tamás, was drafted into the military to fight for Nazi Germany, which had just occupied his home country that very same year, 1944. After just a few months of sort of serving somewhere in the, on the front, Andras Tamás was captured by the Soviet army 
he did not speak a word of Russian. And at some point, the boy's Hungarian was mistaken for the, the gibberish or the babbling of somebody with serious mental illness. So Andras, at age 19, was committed to a psychiatric hospital in the Soviet Union where he was forgotten for 53 years. Fast forward to the year 2000, and the psychiatrist at the hospital, a new who was just, had begun working there, finally realized what had happened, found somebody who spoke Hungarian, and later that year, Tamás was repatriated. We, he was returned home to Budapest as a war hero and celebrated around the world as the last prisoner of war from World War II. But that's really just the start of Andras Tamás's story, what makes it amazing, because he never learned Russian, and because nobody in the hospital for all those years spoke Hungarian, Andras had apparently not had a single conversation with a human being in over five decades. And during that time, he forgot his own name. And during that time, those 50-some-odd years, he had never seen his face in a mirror. So according to one news account about this story, this amazing story of this last prisoner of war in the Second World War, the writer of the, the news reporter said, for hours this now old man studies his face in the mirror, his deep-set eyes, the gray stubble on his chin, the furrows of the brow. It is in one way unfamiliar, but in other ways you can tell he knows it is his face but it is a startling revelation. It's a great way to describe looking in the mirror every morning, a startling revelation. Imagine looking in the mirror and not recognizing yourself. That would be disorienting to say the least. It would be terrifying not to be able to recognize your own face. Yet there are more people than you might imagine who suffer from this malady, who can't perform that simple task of recognizing their face in the mirror. According to neurological research, about 2% of the human population has a condition in which they cannot recognize faces, including their own. Our biblical tradition tells us that we are not created to try to recognize ourselves alone. We the Bible tells us, this great tradition of 66 books written across centuries from all kinds of perspectives, we are made in the image of God. It is a reminder to us that when we drift far from God as we do and far from ourselves, like Adam and Eve in that ancient story, which may or may not be true literally and historically, but is definitely true existentially, when we try to take God's job to be the arbiter of our own faith, the be-all and end-all of our own lives, when we try to take on the job of completing our own lives, sooner or later we get to a place where we lose touch with the person we're born to be. We can't recognize ourselves anymore. We no longer see a child of God in God's image. And I love how realistic our scriptural tradition is on this question, this difficult question. The most faithful characters in scripture 
are fully human. They are what we call in literary study round characters. The ones who know and experience God's presence in their lives most profoundly aren't always virtuous. They aren't always people of great faith. They're not always moral. They don't always do the right thing. They're not always on the right side of things. They're just people who time and time again have to face themselves and discover that when they do, God loves them and is with them anyway. That's the number one message I want to give to children and to young people. No matter how well or not well you do in life, you are loved anyway, just as you are right now. David, the great King David, had a real relationship with God like that, where God knew David as David really was and loved David anyway. David did incredible things, sure. He was chosen by Samuel from amongst all his more handsome older brothers. David defeated Goliath in battle. David replaced King Saul. David was a very successful monarch. He consolidated Israel's power. He may or may not have written a lot of psalms. Who knows? He was a great musician, but he was definitely not perfect, and today's story reminds us of that. He was talented and sensitive and also flawed. But this is like getting to know someone better and better, isn't it? At first, you think they're perfect. They do everything and give you everything you think you need in a relationship, but pretty soon you start to see their imperfections and their faults become disappointed, and that's what happens when we read along through First and Second Samuel, and the Bible introduces us and takes us farther and farther into David's life. Late one spring afternoon, our text today says, King David, who the author reminds us should have been out fighting a battle, leading his army in uh, combat, has decided to stay home. And only trouble happens when famous people decide to stay home. Anybody remember Hamilton? What happens when Alexander decides not to go up to the lake with his wife? Things don't go well, right? Same exact thing happens to King David. He's walking on his rooftop, the tallest roof in Jerusalem, to get a little bit of the afternoon breeze, to, get, to cool down a little bit. And as he looks down on other rooftops, he sees Bathsheba, who is married to Uriah, bathing. Taking a bath. That's why her name is Bathsheba, maybe. I don't know. But David's desire for this woman drives him to commit adultery and then murder and then to cover up what he has done. And Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David marries her to get, him, get her into his harem. They have a child, and he thinks he's escaped the consequences of what he has done. Putting Uriah, who was his own soldier, at the front. In, like if you were, remember, remember uh, Hogan's Heroes? Whenever you were dispensable, you went to the Russian front. Or if you remember Star Trek, and people beamed down to the planet's surface, anybody wearing a red sweater never made it back. Uhura, Sulu, Bones, Spock, and Ensign Johnson. Ensign Johnson never came back. This is what happened to Uriah. But one day the prophet Nathan, the advisor to the king, 
tells the king, after he hears what he has done with Uriah, tells the king this story about a man, this powerful man who takes a poor man's only beloved lamb. And the king is so furious, he says, this man deserves to die because David, as faithful as he is, does not recognize himself. He needs Nathan, God's voice, to hold up a mirror in front of him so so David has to confront who he really is. He doesn't want to see it, but Nathan makes him. As surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you're right. And guess what? You are the man. Not like, you are the man, like they say now. You are the man who did this, Nathan says. And Nathan the prophet, who probably makes King David very angry in that moment, helps his king take that first step back home to who he really is today. David has to face the truth that on his own he just can't do it. He can't do it well or right or completely as hard And as painful as it is, this step has to happen in faith. It's why we confess every Sunday at the beginning of worship so that we build in that recognition, that experience of laying ourselves before God and each other and ourselves who we really are. Because the second half of seeing ourselves in the mirror is restoration and wholeness that doesn't come from us, from our goodness or even our desire and our remorse to make amends, it simply comes from God. God eventually looks beyond this terrible thing that David does in this story. This is like one of those investigation discovery YouTube videos that I can't stop watching. Uriah, going along his merry way, married to Bathsheba, he's probably like a clerk or an accountant, gets sent to the front lines and never makes it home. Eventually Bathsheba has another child. First child, the one conceived with David the first time, does not survive, but Bathsheba will eventually give birth to Solomon, who becomes this great king and paragon of wisdom. And the story of life and the story of faith goes on, all the way down through the Davidic line to Jesus of Nazareth himself. It is humbling and empowering at the same time to look at ourselves honestly in the mirror as David must today and still see a beloved child of God empowered by this love of God to be in this relationship which leads us to share that love with others a love that will not let us go and calls us to share that love by witnessing to it no matter how afraid we might be that we can't do it alone because God always is with us every step of the way. The quote that leads our bulletin this morning by Nadia Boltz Weber, this unique voice Lutheran pastor in Denver, really is this, captures the moment when we look in the mirror and see not just our flaws and faults, but our belovedness, our cherished identity as God's child as well. When she says, I realize God may have gotten something beautiful done through me despite the fact that I am imperfect. When I am confronted by the mercy of the gospel so much that I cannot hate my enemies. And when I am unable to judge the sin of someone else, which, let's be honest, I love to do, because my own brokenness is too much in the way. 
and when I have to bear witness to another human being suffering despite my desire to be left alone, and when I am forgiven by someone even though I don't deserve it, and my forgiver does this because he too is trapped by the gospel. May we all, after we look at them into the mirror, be trapped by the gospel, the good news of God's love. Amen.